It's said that your real life begins where your comfort zone ends. Well, it's about to get real as we have radically authentic conversations to help you thrive in your personal and professional life while navigating the twists and turns of being human. Buckle up, because this might get uncomfortable. Starts right now with Jason Robel and Whitney Lauritsen. Too legit. Too legit to quit. Yay, 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 yay. Too legit. Dun, 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 dun. It is not often we drop an MC Hammer reference. I think this is maybe the first MC Hammer reference in the history of this might get uncomfortable. And it is thanks to our guest and our new friend, Aaron Wiseman, today. Because when we were communicating back and forth, as we do when we bring guests on the podcast, she dropped an MC Hammer reference, and I thought, this is my kind of guest. So welcome, Aaron, and thank you for that throwback. Hell yes! When you asked me about my <laughs> podcasting setup, I mean, I had to put, it's too legit to quit. I mean, seriously. Seriously. So it's so glad to have somebody who catches the reference because all these young millennials, I'm an old millennial, by the way, but all the young millennials are like, what? What are you talking about? I'm like, you guys wear MC Hammer pants. Come on now. You got to know the songs. That reminds me of something I've seen on TikTok, which constantly reminds me of our age differences because there are people of all different ages on TikTok, but it, it's primarily whatever generation a 16 or 17 year old is right now. I don't even know. That's actually something I have trouble keeping track of. I'm constantly getting the different generations confused. All I know is I too am an, on the older side of a millennial. And Jason is technically not a millennial, but he acts and lives like a millennial. So that's also a reminder that it doesn't really matter how old you are because each of us can kind of take on the, the qualities of other generations. But I digress. I guess being like a kid right now, it's very appealing or intriguing to do things that we did in the 90s. So perhaps these songs will become more well-known because like 90s is a trend right now for the teenagers. And then there was this really uncomfortable reference that I saw on uh, TikTok, again, where I, I get most of my information these days, where they were saying that you know, the show That 70s Show was made like 28 years after the 70s. So that felt like a long time ago, right? Like, so for us, millennials, or, you know, when we were watching that show, whenever that came out, it felt like the 70s was like old. And now they're saying that the 90s feels old to people and so much so that they could create a show called That 90s Show. And teenagers right now would be like, wow, that's the old days. Oh my God, I hope they do. Like I say, bring back the 90s. So I play mom soccer on Monday nights and I'm kind of in charge of the leagues. And you better believe I'm talking to Echo and we listen to the best of the 90s. I bring that shit back all the time. Well, again, you're a perfect guest for the show because Jason's really into 90s music and 80s music. I feel like there's a lot of like vagueness and crossover between 80s and 90s music and style and all of that. And uh, that also reminds me, I'm curious if, I don't think Jason has watched this, but maybe he'll surprise me and say yes. Saved by the Bell just came out with a, a revamped version of itself. And it's super 
interesting. I used I to love Saved it. by the Bell. I can't do it. <laughs> did you try? I love the original. Did you try watching it? Yes, I tried. I could not do it. I'm like, no, no, this is not it. <laughs> I felt the same way, but I actually did end up getting into it because it, it's, it has its moments enough to be interesting, even though I agree it's nowhere near as good in my heart as the original. There's just something about that style. It's much like Friends, you know, like other shows try to be their own version of Friends. And it's just not the same. I don't know if Friends would be the same if you brought it back. But I think there's enough nostalgia in the new Saved by the Bell for me to watch it. And they actually make fun of the old show in very clever ways. And they brought back a lot of the cast. Jason, have you checked it out at all? Are you at all interested in watching that? And, and I can't remember, Jason, were you into Saved by the Bell or not really? Uh, first of all, I have not watched it. Uh, I will give what? it a shot. You know what's so funny? Like, and this is maybe part of a more generalized conversation. I feel like a lot of the, how do I even say this? Sort of the prototypical socially passed around things that have happened during COVID, I have not partaken. Example A would be baking sourdough. I've not made a single loaf of sourdough. Not really interested. There's an amazing vendor at the farmer's market I get my sourdough from, so I'm cheating on that one. And then there's other shows like like The Queen's Gambit or Saved by the Bell or th there's just sort of these things that are like, oh, hey, did you make your sourdough? Did you watch the Saved by the Bell reboot? Hey, did you listen to the Dave Matthews live stream? Like I'm literally not participating in basically any of those activities. So I'm behind. I don't even know if I want to say behind because that, oh God, here I go on a tangent. Welcome, Aaron, to the tangent show. It's like, I feel a pressure sometimes on top of everything else I have decided and chosen to take on in my life of like, oh, okay, so Jeff wants me to watch The Queen's Gambit and Whitney wants me to watch Save a Bell and this person wants to bake sourdough and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, I just want to take a fucking nap. <laughs> so I feel sometimes a level of, I don't know, not pressure so much. But yeah, kind of. And, and I'm, I'm very reticent to do too much even leisure activities, if this makes sense, because I feel my sensitivity to overwhelm and burnout is so high right now. And it's so high partially because I'm recovering right now from, from a surgery. I had a, a motorcycle accident one month ago, Aaron, but it's like, on top of everything else in my life, it's this idea that like people, people, I don't know, like telling me to watch things. And I'm like, I just want a nap. <laughs> and, and that's just what I want to do. So I don't know. I, that's a long answer to why I haven't watched it. A long answer. I think you should say that you just don't succumb to social pressure and just leave it at that. <laughs> I like that. I like that. I have a feeling Whitney won't accept that though when she's like, I sent you 159 TikToks. Why haven't you watched them? Be like, Whitney. I don't succumb to social. Okay, pressure. I have to. I have to say, I am not on TikTok, so that has been my one pushback. Is like I got enough going on in other places. I I'm I'm not a TikToker at this point. But well, I will. I did just watch the Queen's Gambit and binged it. Holy shit! It's a great series. I did not watch that one with the tiger guy though. That has like been my one uh, like <laughs> opt out. Neither neither did, did Jason. Did not watch that. Well, I will say that, A, I am glad that I've taken my time and I did not binge watch The Queen's Gambit because I just found out within the past day or two that it's not an ongoing series, right? It just ends and that's it. There's not a second season coming yeah. out. No. So I like 
to know that in advance so I can take my time. Otherwise, I'd kind of rush through and and maybe like take take it for granted thinking like, oh, well, you know, there'll be another season of this. So I don't have to slow down. But if I know that it's its own contained mini series, then I tend to watch it very differently. And you know where I learned this information? TikTok. This is where I get the great majority of my daily news. TikTok is a marvelous place for staying in touch with what's happening around the world. It's very current events and it's also very trendy. Is that, your, so, is that your algorithm? Because I love people asking people what their algorithm is. Because right now yes. my niece, who is a TikTok addict, hers is all cute puppies. That's her. Yeah, algorithm. And this is a very good point. And I think this is actually one of the cool factors of TikTok is that Yes, it does change based on your watch, your viewing habits and what you're liking and interacting. So in a way, you can actually kind of control the direction of TikTok if you just intentionally go and like, comment on, you know, whatever, engage with, watch specific styles or types of videos. And then that's all you'll get in your feed. And you won't get any of the things that you don't like. So if you're not into the sourdough or the dancing or the Tiger King references or whatever, you won't see very much of it at all. And then I would also say to your point, Aaron, about having so much on your plate, it's basically replaced every other social media network. I'm barely on Instagram. Instagram I use for communication. I think it's another side of email, right? People sending direct messages, at least to begin with. A good conversation starter on Instagram. And then I use Instagram to post things, but I don't enjoy scrolling through Instagram. I kind of do it because I feel like I have to just to see what people are up to. But the place that I scroll is TikTok. I barely use YouTube anymore. I don't really use Facebook. So it's kind of crowded out the other social media platforms for me unless I have more time to use it. See, that's like opposite for me because I feel like my Instagram feed is like a power dose of encouragement when I jump on there because it's I've got it curated enough where it's like scroll, kick ass, take names Monday, scroll, look at the amazing lady boss stuff that I'm doing, scroll. Oh, there's a cute picture of somebody's kids. I don't know. Like, I, I think it is all about like curating your algorithm. With that. But the one thing I do have a beef with right now is on IG, you know, they discontinued hashtags with all the election bullshit. And I'm waiting for them to get those back on because I do miss, I miss my good hashtags. But you know, the other place that I hang out on the internet, LinkedIn, it is popping in my world. Yes. I love me some LinkedIn, Facebook. Yeah. YouTube. I'll go there for my yoga with Adrian videos, but otherwise, nah. But yeah, LinkedIn, I am loving it right now. That's where I'm having most of my direct messages, conversations, finding amazing people who are doing just incredible work in the world and sharing my sass all over the place. That's a good reminder because I don't spend enough time on LinkedIn and I don't think Jason does either. Maybe the listeners don't. I feel like it it gets left behind unless you're really focused on business. People just forget that LinkedIn in, in itself is a social media network, not just like truly well, I mean, networking and connecting. It. Yeah, they yeah. really changed. It's not just business. I really feel like it's more of the like place where people are getting shit done. Because yeah. like me, I post a lot on there against burnout, against the culture of burnouts, especially in healthcare, since that's kind of my bubble. 
But I see a lot of other people talking about what they're doing. And you, it's a great place too to kind of brag a little bit on yourself to what did you publish? <laughs> what new podcast episode you got? No, seriously, because then if somebody puts something cool on there, then I'm like, all right, I'm gonna go listen to your episode because I saw this post. And the other cool thing is that I love about LinkedIn is the conversations that happen in the comments. Because then I find new people all around the world who commented on this one thread that I thought was pretty stinking awesome. And then I have a connection with them. And then anytime I want to talk to them, network with them, like, oh, hey, I see you're cool doing this cool, you know, health tech startup. Like it's just a natural ease rather than what I feel like LinkedIn was maybe four years ago. Mm, well, you've inspired me because I think the reason I don't use LinkedIn much is because I'm out of the flow with it and it overwhelms me when I go on there. I feel like I haven't curated my feed yet. So I keep seeing posts that I'm not really that into. So it's like you have to invest the work into any of these platforms in the beginning to get them to work for you and dip your toes in enough that you start to feel more comfortable with that. That's basically how I felt about TikTok. And you know, a lot of people have misconceptions, but I, I do believe that TikTok or some other platform, it might not be TikTok. There's a lot of conversations going on right now about people getting incredibly frustrated with Instagram and Facebook, which is, have been the big social media networks. And TikTokers in general, there's like at least the trend that I'm seeing, you know, and just because you see a few videos doesn't mean that everyone feels this way. But the consensus that I'm noticing is, is TikTokers can't stand Instagram. They're constantly complaining about it. And what's been interesting about it as both a creator and a consumer a viewer on TikTok is that it changes the way that you view other platforms for good and for bad. And, and people are also noticing that your intention span is not benefiting from using TikTok because now YouTube videos seem way too long. Facebook seems boring and Instagram seems boring because on, on TikTok, it's like very, very stimulating. And you oh, have to stay... Totally the exactly. Yes. And, and you have to stay conscious of it. And I, I think, unfortunately, because the main user base on TikTok is very young, like they're not aware of how it's affecting their brains. And, and as an adult, I'm very aware of that and I still succumb to it. So I actually have to set more boundaries with myself with TikTok because, you know, to Jason's point, I think, and, and Jason, I'm actually curious if you can confirm this, but I send Jason a ton of videos on TikTok like every day. He'll like watch a couple of them, comment on them, but the, he doesn't watch the great majority of them because I'll just go through like a bin share, you know, <laughs> and I'm just like, posting uh, or sharing tons of videos on there because I'll be on TikTok for like an hour a day just as my entertainment or kind of more on the research side of things. You know, I learn a lot on there, as I said. Uh, it tells me about trends. It tells me what's going on in the world. So it's like a combination of, of entertainment, infotainment, uh, and news. So I end up sharing a lot with you, Jason, and it just doesn't seem like your thing. And I'm kind of curious why. And to Aaron's point about the digital detox side of things, I'm curious, like, are you afraid, Jason, of falling down the rabbit hole and getting like, you know, too into this stuff? Or is it that you you have a threshold that's already been met and thus why you don't want to watch the trending show and you don't want to make the sourdough? Like, it's not just peer pressure, I don't think. It also seems to me to be like 
maybe you just already have too much on your plate or you just don't want to add anything else because you like what you currently have. Is that how you feel about TikTok or LinkedIn or any of these other platforms? I think that there's that it's going to be a long answer. So buckle up. Number one, I think that I'm getting better at assessing the value quotient versus the amount of time and attention I'm going to give to something, right? So with TikTok, specifically, because you brought it up, Whitney, there's, there's layers to it. Number one is that it's not that I don't feel entertained by the things that you send me because your curation skills are masterful. You send me really great content. But it's, it's the volume of content that I receive from TikTok from you that I have a very distinct threshold of saying the amount of minutes and hours I'm going to spend looking at this stuff does not result in a dividend or a level of joy or return that makes it worth me investing this amount of time each day. And that's just not with TikTok. That's with, with a lot of things. And, and you know, for me, I think it's part of an overall conversation that I'm still exploring. We've talked about this on the podcast, Aaron, this idea of digital detoxing, but even taking it a step further into to taking a break from social media completely. And this is a slippery slope, right? Because we have a business, Wellevator. We have this podcast. This might get uncomfortable. We have certain promotions and programs and things that we have students in. But to be honest, my, my personal threshold is getting lower and lower and lower in terms of what I want to take on digitally the amount of room in my head I want this stuff to occupy, if I'm going to be blunt about it, most of the stuff that I'm consuming and giving my attention to, which I feel you know, attention is like the biggest currency right now with digital media, is that I don't feel inspired by most of it. I just don't. I really don't. I, 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 I don't know that I want to get into the psychological ramifications of why that is, but most of the content, and, and perhaps it's because the curation, I've not done a great job of curating, but even people I find that used to inspire me, I don't, I don't necessarily need to bring up specific examples, but you know, authors, speakers, coaches, certain people that I followed for years, I'll get their emails or I'll get their posts and I read them and I'm like, this doesn't resonate at all. So I think for me, it's an attention versus value quotient where I'm finding that most of the attention I give to these pieces of content, I'm not deriving a lot of value from them. It's a few moments of laughter. There's nothing wrong with that. But I don't want to give that much attention to social media anymore. And it's a slippery slope, as I said, because we do have an online business and we are entrepreneurs. I'm still trying to find the balance, I guess, is my, my long summation of this answer. And you know, passing it, I guess, to you, Aaron, for a second, piggybacking on Whitney's question. You know, you have quite an interesting flow on your website talking about burnout and overwhelm and overworking. And I saw that you have this amazing quiz I want to take called How Crispy Are You? And to be blunt, I feel different levels of crisp every damn day. Like there are times when I'm like, oh, you left your pizza in the oven for two hours and forgot about it. Now the whole house is filled with smoke and you're fucked. That's rare. But if I'm honest about it, almost every day I feel some form of crispiness. And I find that odd. And concerning. Mm, I find that concerning for you too, friend. Like that's, I don't want you crispy around the edges. <laughs> we need to work on this for you. Well, how? I mean, how, but, how, but how to begin when, you know, it's, you have the layers of entrepreneurship, digital media, being a content creator, being a podcaster, in your case, being a mom and a wife. I mean, we have all of these roles and hats that we all play, some of them different than others. 
but it's like if we're going to be engaged in the quote modern world and run a business and have a family and have a mortgage and I, we could go up the, way down that rabbit hole, mm-hmm. how do we not be crispy for fuck's sake? <laughs> well, I, I'm going to get all life coachy on you. And I think you have to really dig down and remind yourself why. Why are you doing all the social media? Why are you doing the entrepreneurship gig? Why did you buy the house? Why do you have all the things that you're doing and all the dishes you're spinning and keeping up into the air? And really digging into that why and being okay with it. And then also discovering if you're not okay with your why, then how do you change that? And that's a huge thing for me. So I've been an entrepreneur almost six years now. I'm in year five. Started out as a side hustle when I was still practicing medicine full-time. It's now become my full-time gig. It's how I support my family. It's what I love doing. And so burnout was not just a component in my clinical life. Burnout is a component in my entrepreneurial life too. And so again, that same thing of like, why am I practicing medicine? Was the same question I had to ask myself a couple of years ago. Like, why am I doing this small business thing? Because it can fucking suck sometimes. It can be so grindy and get so crispy around the edges with doing the next post and getting the next launch up and sending that email series that I think it's really, really super important to tap back in to that why and to make sure that it still aligns. Is if it doesn't align, then you're going to have friction and you're going to have warmth and you're going to get crispy and then you're going to burn out. And so that's why I encourage you, Jason, just to sit back and maybe. Maybe what you're feeling right now is some like misalignment with things. And there's a couple of things that you can do when you get misaligned. I don't know if you guys know the Eisenhower matrix. I'll have to send it to you so that you can put it in the show notes. But it is an amazing square with four little squares inside of it. And it's a decision-making tool. And so like, oh, I'm just going to tell you, I'm a math science nerd. Proudly profess that. So on the x-axis is the columns that says like urgent, not urgent. And then on the y-axis is important and not important. So if you're looking at tasks and you're like, oh my God, I have so much to do. There's so many things happening. You look on the Eisenhower matrix and you're like, okay, is this urgent? Yes, no. Is this important? Yes, no. If it's urgent and it's important, then you just do it. You put it on your to-do list and you knock it out and get it done. If it is important, but it's not urgent, then you just schedule it and you don't let it take up any more brain space. You know that constant thought tornado that we have that's like, oh my God, I got to do this. And then on Sunday, I got to do this. And the cat's got to go to the vet on Friday. And oh, my middle kid has got an appointment. Did it? No, no, no. You just schedule it and be like, okay, I'm going to trust the schedule magic and it's going to be there and remind me when it's time to do it. Now, popping back into the other category, say that there's something urgent, but it's not important to you. I love this square. This is like saved my life during COVID. This is the delegated square. This is who can do this better than me? Who can do this more efficient with me? Who can I pay 20 bucks to do this when it would take me 10 hours worth of work to do and get it off your plate? I think so many more people, I mean, I especially know that I do this. You listed all of my roles, but I'll be perfectly honest. I can't be all those roles at one time. I can't even fit all those roles into one day. So I have to be really intentional about what roles do I want to be doing? And so I don't want to be the toilet scrubber. So I'm going to pay somebody to do that. I love mowing the grass. 
But you know what? There's sometimes when I'm just so busy and I'm doing other things and I want to go play with my kids or go to the pool that I'm like, yeah, I'll pay the neighbor kid and delegate that out. Even my kids have had to learn like delegation, like mom is not your slave. And even at nine, six and four, they know the art of delegation, probably too well because they've started delegating to each other. But getting back to my Eisenhower matrix, the fourth square, which I think is as important as the other three, if something is not important and it is not urgent, Jason, I think you're living in the square a little bit, but it's delete it. And this is what I tell my people is like, you just need to chuck it in the fuck it bucket and leave it there. Too many times we're like, oh, we're not going to do that. But then we dig it out of the trash. So really reminding yourself what is important, what is urgent, what do I want to do with the situation? And knowing that it's totally okay to say, nah, I pass on that. What do you guys think? I just want to say, I want to take the catchphrase, chuck it in the fuck it bucket and write it in my office. That <laughs> No, for real. Like that, Aaron, it was so brilliant and you're so wise and you have so much humor, but I'm like, yeah, yeah, I'm actually, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to get a bucket, a physical bucket and write the fuck it bucket and then write things down on slips of paper and just like toss them or incinerate them in the fuck it bucket. Like that sounds so fun to me. Yes. Yeah. Because I think in the culture that we're living in, that we're supposed to do all of the things, but we're not supposed to do all the things. We're supposed to do all of our things and reminding ourselves that we have choice 100% of time with this. So important. I think the interesting thing in piggybacking on this is something Whitney and I were discussing, Aaron, in a recent podcast about the idea that the more that we do, the more that we take on, the harder we work being the hardest worker in the room, things that we were, a lot of us really conditioned since childhood in school with grades and and working hard. I mean, I remember in school really stressing so much about getting, quote, good grades, right? Because, oh, you're not going to get into the college you want. And what about your SAT scores? And what about, you know, just so much pressure for these these arbitrary measurements, right? Mm -hmm. Because if you don't excel in these arbitrary measurements, you won't, quote, get access to the things you want or your parents say you should want. But I remember the kids that were getting GPAs over 4.0. I mean, I remember the first conversation I had with someone, a young lady, and I was like, what do you mean you have like a 4.125? Like, how is that possible? She's like, oh, I'm in AP classes. And I remember her being so stressed and so frazzled. And she's like, yeah, but I've got a 4.125. And I'm like, you know, very, very A-type excel at everything. And I think this conversation of, you know, being a good spouse, being a good mother, being a great entrepreneur, being a great content creator, being an influencer, whatever the hat is, there's still this sort of socialized, systematized idea of he or she who works the hardest and excels the most will get the rewards. And so people are literally killing themselves trying to outwork each other for this idea of some gold medal at the end of the rainbow. and. I think I've fallen into that for sure, but I realize the the more people I meet and discuss it with, there's a lot of people falling in this trap. Oh, absolutely. And you're talking to the queen of type A personalities because I think I graduated from high school with a one point or 4.1. Ah, <laughs> uh, you're one of those. Well, yeah, because you don't go into a high-performing career. You don't go into medicine and not be a little bit of a perfectionist. I meet so many people who 
We have this invisible rule book that gets installed in our brain, probably unconsciously when we're elementary school or younger, about hard work always wins. I used to tell people all the time, I may not be the smartest in the class, but I will outwork you. I was like that on athletic field with anybody that I would outwork you. Because somewhere in my brain, it got planted. If you work hard enough, you will win. You will succeed. You will get the gold medal. And I think we're all starting to wake up and be like, where's my fucking medal? Like, I've been grinding for a while. Like, is it that I do this? And I think that was where my epiphany was back in 2014 when I got out of residency. So I'm a family medicine physician. So I got out of family medicine residency. I started my practice. I was supposed to be at the top of the mountain. Like I had done the things. First doctor in my family. Um, I had two kids during residency. I had the dog, the house, the white picket fence, the minivan, you know, the things. And I looked around and I was like, this is life for like the next 40 years. This is what I spent my 20s on. This is what I missed for my kids' first year of life because I was in the hospital taking care of other people's families. Like this? This is my gold medal. And it still is very hard for my family to understand why I've done a whole 180 change from being a traditional family medicine doc to now being a life coach. Because I looked around and I was like, if that's what all my work got me, I don't want none of it. I don't care about the multiple six figures. And I think it's getting really real about like, what's the point? What do you really want to walk away at the end of your life with? And so that's been a big influencer to me is really looking at those invisible rules that we tell ourselves and being like, is this really true? Like, is this really serving me? I grew up in the Midwest. I am a good old farm girl. I married a farmer, true blue all the way through. And it's just one of those that I now look at it. And (laughs) some of the things that people say around me or even, for instance, recently with my oldest, he's nine years old. He's in the third grade. We got his report card from, you know, like the past nine weeks, which we here in Indiana, we've been doing hybrid schooling. So they go to school two days and they're homeschooled three days. Anyway, he got his report card back and he had all A's, but he had one B in spelling. And one of my family members kind of like jumped on him about it, that he got a B. And I was like, in the whole scope of his life, getting a B in third grade spelling, you really think that's going to matter? Because I don't. Because I look back at my whole academic career and all the A's and all the bonus points and all the extra studying when I probably knew what I needed to know. And where'd that get me? Besides a handful of burnout (laughs) and reevaluating my choices in my 30s and 40s. Now, I wouldn't take any of it back now. I'm really proud of what I've done. I don't regret becoming a physician. I think it's opened so many doors to me. But what I've had to realize is the rules that were written in my rule book were not written by me. And at this point, I get to choose what they are moving forward. And how this un- sort of pivot, you know, this pivot process that you had of spending, my God, so many years and so much money studying, being in residency, having this career track, and then completely pivoting out of it from an emotional or mental perspective. Obviously, you had you know the the input of your family or, or friends or people maybe criticizing you or, or judging your choice. But what was that like to you know look at this you know decade plus you invested into your education, your career, and be like, yeah, I don't want to do it anymore. Was it 
a simple pivot or was it fraught with, you know, second guessing yourself, fear, doubt? What was that like mentally and, and physically and spiritually for you, that whole process? Oh my gosh. It was, it was all of that. And plus some. And even now, there's times as stuff bubbles up to the surface. I'm like, whoa, I thought we worked through that. <laughs> and it comes back up again. I think the first point was really looking at how I identified myself and realizing that my ego played more of a part into it than I realized. Like choosing my career path, being a physician, such a noble profession. Because for so long, and I, I always encourage people, how do you introduce yourself to a stranger? Do you say like, hey, nice to meet you. I'm Dr. Wiseman. Or do you say, hey, I'm Aaron. I work as a physician. Because I think those words, I am, are so pointing to what we're hanging our identity onto. And so for me, the realization that I was not happy with my identity was huge because it wasn't just my job. It is what I had based my whole life on what I was going to become. And then when I got there and I didn't want it, who was I? And so I went through this whole point of like, maybe I'm crazy. Maybe I'm broken. Maybe it's just me. But with a little bit of help, and thank goodness that I found a fellow coach that I started working with at that time, I realized that it wasn't me that was broken. It wasn't me that was crazy, that other people had thought these same, same thoughts and were, were doing things about it, and that I wasn't alone, and that change really could happen. And I actually really had to go through a grieving process, like a legit grieving process of like letting go of the past, letting go of all the expectations of how life was quote unquote supposed to be and how it was supposed to turn out and kind of go through denial, anger, depression, bargaining, and then acceptance. <laughs> had to go through all of those to then be able to be like, okay, I'm at this point now. Where do I go from here? And it was so helpful to see other people who had walked the path before me or maybe five or 10 steps in front of to be like, okay, if they can change and do something different, then so can I. And what I discovered as I looked around that there were a lot of older in-career physicians who had made some changes, but there, there weren't any like young physician mom coaches at the time. Or if they were, I wasn't able to find them. And so I started looking around and I was like, I think I need to like tell other people about this. I think I need to speak out about this. I think there's other women out there who would relate to my story and I need to help them as well. And that's when I realized that my identity was not doctor. Why I was put on this earth was not just to be a physician. Why I was put on this earth was to help people and that I could help people in thousands of different ways. And it was just up to me on exactly how I wanted to do that. And so once I got really clear about you know, my identity and, and that I wasn't just put on this earth to do just one thing, but maybe I was going to do multiple things, multiple different times and look multiple different ways. And I gave myself permission to try it differently. And one quote that I still love and hang on to is that because, you know, you said fear and fear was definitely there, especially the fear of failure. Whew, again, talking to the recovering perfectionist, fear of failure is huge. But when I was able to start giving myself the permission to try, 
then I also had to give myself the permission to not do things perfectly and to start viewing failure as feedback for the next time. Yeah, this is such a poignant thing that we're we're discussing because I feel like there's this idea that if we just do things a particular way, Whitney and I t- have talked about this kind of ad nauseum about, you know, formulas in life and how so many coaches or people online that are supporting other people have have formulas or blueprints and that if you follow this formula or this blueprint you'll have a joyful life you'll have a fulfilled life i mean there are many versions of this it's not just coaches and 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 people online doing this but i think society in general predicates you know as you mentioned you know you go to school you get your doctorate you have the white picket fence you have the the three kids you have the dog you have the farmhouse you have all these things you mentioned and we we have our own versions of that right i think every person has their own version and i think one of the scariest and most exciting places to be is when you're on the other side of achieving all the things that they told you would make you happy or fulfilled and you're not. I'm kind of in that space right now with letting go and transitioning out of my career as as a chef and being in the food industry. And it's challenging. I think I, I'm in the bargaining. I'm in the bargaining phase because there's this, there's this, yeah, but people are still dangling carrots and there are still these opportunities and you've built all this equity and people know you for this. But it doesn't bring me joy anymore. So it's like, yeah, there's this. <laughs> yeah, legit. So it, but it's, nice. bar- but it's, bar- it's bargaining though, right? It's like, yeah. it's like trying to negotiate with myself. Yeah. But for what? It's like to, to keep the handcuffs on. I mean, I, I have this fantasy and I, I, I was telling Whitney last night too. And she's been really supportive throughout this whole process of, I took down my entire vision board for the first time in like 12 years. And later today, I'm just going to shred all of it because I looked at it all. And it was all kind of this hyper-materialistic goal setting. And there's nothing wrong with nice things. I like nice things. But I realized that everything on my vision board was this idea of, yeah, man, get this house, this car, have your body look this way, do all these things and get invited to this conference and speak on this stage. And I'm like, who fucking cares anymore? I don't know. I just, for the first time, I kind of looked at my vision board in 12 years of doing it and went, I just don't care. Why? On the other side of getting this house or this car or this, this quote gold medal. And then what? Are you a better person? Have you become a more holy person, a more ethical person? Does God love you more now? Are people going to celebrate you more? I mean, getting to the why you mentioned, I think is such an important part of this. And I'm, I'm deep in it right now. It's like, why? Why do I want those things? Because I think that I'll prove something to my mom. I'll prove something to my friends. I'll prove something to God. I'll prove like, why? Why want all these things? And I'm like, I'm way deep in that, in that question right now of why. It's kind of coming through like a flamethrower in my life. It's just burning shit left and right. Yeah. Well, you're in that like deconstruction zone of like how I always felt as I constructed this house of glass around me and then looked around and be like, I don't want this. And I think the reckoning that I had to come against was like the traditional idea of the American dream and about honestly kind of how shallow that is to like have the house, pay off your mortgage, fund your kids education. And exactly. It's like, why? What difference does this make in the world if I have, you know, a 4,000 square foot home versus a 3,000 square foot home? Like, 
it's a home. Are we warm? Are we taken care of? Who have we helped in the world through this? And so I think that's where a lot of us are doing some processing. And I think 2020 has forced that upon all of us. I know one big thing right now that it seems like a lot of people are talking about as well when you mentioned like having a certain shaped body. So I just remind people that what is your body doing now that you need it to do? You're breathing air. Your heart is pumping blood through all of your capillaries. You're thinking thoughts. And so it it doesn't look a particular shape. Because to me, like, all bodies belong. And so I think it is a, a really good idea to, to step back and remind ourselves, again, like, digging beyond the surface of those, like, external factors of what success are and really getting into a new paradigm. And so one cool thing that I've recently started doing, I don't know if you guys had this when you were in grade school, but we always had these cardstock report cards. Remember them? They would come in like a yellow envelope and the teachers would like write your <laughs> grades on them. You know what I'm talking about, right? I haven't thought about that in a long time. And now I'm like, wow, I think I do remember that. <laughs> yeah, you would like flip open the top because you're like, oh my God, what were my grades going to be? You know, go through like reading, math, science, social studies, art, you know, all those kind of things. And so recently I had my graphic designer come up with a report card like that and we printed them and it was a homework assignment for the people that I coach with to make a new report card. Because we've been told our whole life, like these are the things that you need to do to achieve to be a good, successful person in the world. Remember, my dad would always say, my job as a parent is to make sure that you are an independent and well-flourishing adult. I'm like, oh, okay, that's nice. What else, you know? And so I think as we're having this conversation, it's really important to look at your new report card. And instead of being like, education, check, family, check, house, check, student loans, not quite checked out on that, but getting closer. And asking yourself, like, is this really what I want to measure my life on? Measure my levels of success? And if it's not, like, reminding yourself that you can put new things on the report card, like impact. You know, one thing that's really important to me is community. And that would go on there. So, yeah. Write yourself a new report card. I'm curious. This is for both of you. Whitney, you and I have touched on this, but I want to bring it back around because we mentioned it previously. In this reevaluation of what matters, I think it's looking at a lot of rhetoric that get, gets passed around, I think, in the self-help or the wellness community. I don't even know what to call it anymore. The industry and the community we all play in, whatever it's called. People looking to take a deeper look at who they are and, and, and their why and what motivates them. There's this, this rhetoric that you know everyone can be great. And this idea of greatness, the school of greatness, the blah, blah of greatness, be great, excel, be a champion. You know, and we see these messages of people sort of at the top of their respective games or industries saying like, yeah, if you just put your mind and your heart to it, you can do anything. But one thing that I've been sitting with recently is like, why am I chasing, quote, greatness? What does that even mean? Is this about proving something to someone, prove my worthiness? Is it really a deep desire and connection I have to whatever this industry I'm in? Or is it like, is it that I'm defaulting into some system of not enoughness, that, that somehow being average, right, is somehow a dirty word now, like it's a bad thing to be average? Because I've been thinking about this a lot. It's like, okay, I'm an average height. 
average weight, make an average amount of money. I drive an average car, live in an average house. Like if I look at my life, it's like, but that's not a bad thing. It's like, I like this stuff and it's okay, but I've been under this guise for years of it's not enough that I need, as you said, the bigger house. I need the better car. I need to somehow prove my greatness to the world. And that if I'm not, quote, great at what I do, then I've somehow failed. But I'm, I'm some, somewhat realizing that average ain't all bad. It's not this negative, horrible thing that I think that, that I've certainly been taught my whole life of like, oh, you better not, you brought up getting a B or a C. You better not get Bs or Cs because that's failure. It's like a B or C is failure. And I thought an F was failure. <laughs> and it's just, I'm realizing all the layers of decades of conditioning that go into this idea of you have to be great at everything or you're a failure. I don't know. I, I don't know if I have a question in all this. I'm just reflecting in real time during this conversation of no, how many layers great. of conditioning there are, you know, yeah, how many I, layers, how deep this goes. And I think you hit on one topic that a lot of people are wrestling right now. And I typed it in the chat for us, which is greatness versus enoughness. And what does that mean? When you say that, what does that mean? What's the distinction? Greatness, as in you're thinking like perfection, how it's supposed to be, be the best versus enoughness in the sense of like, what would be enough? And, you know, like the snappy phrase that's going right now is done is better than perfect. And so I've really been challenged personally and then also professionally to get out of. And again, I think it goes back to perfectionism which can be a superpower, but it can also be our kryptonite. Like I think striving for greatness, striving for perfection is okay. But when it becomes pathologic and when it becomes kryptonite against us is when that is the only option. So if you do a deep dive, just do a Google search sometime about adaptive perfectionism versus maladaptive perfectionism. I love jumping into this topic because... So there's three types of people. You're either an adaptive perfectionist, a maladaptive perfectionist, or you're not a perfectionist at all. I don't know very many of those people. (laughs) I'll be perfectly honest. It's just where I am in life. But I think we let our perfectionist's tendencies, our things that really drive us to strive for greatness, morph into pathologic maladaptive issues when we start to view ourselves as failure instead of looking at a situation and being like, all right, that didn't go exactly how I planned. Next time, insert adjustment with that. Whereas the maladaptive perfectionist is like, that didn't go great. I'm a failure. I'm horrible. I'm never doing that again. I'm going to crawl in my closet and I may come out in a week. And I'm going to beat myself up mentally the whole week that I'm in my closet. Right. So we were talking about this the other day in terms of like aims versus goals, right? It's like we are such a society right now that, like you were saying, Aaron, especially on social media, we see all these like little nuggets of motivation and it's like, reach your goals, go for your goals, set your goals. And I think there's a lot of this mentality and this, this ties into the overall conversation of like, we have this big desire to get somewhere all the time as if there's ever like a place to be and that as soon as we get there, we'll feel satisfied. But everybody who's achieved a goal knows that once you achieve that, you're just on to the next one. 
And so sometimes that can feel good and satisfying. But I think a lot of times we get there and we almost have an empty feeling. Or if we don't get there, that's sometimes even harder to go to tie in this perfectionism mentality. It's like, either didn't do it good enough or well enough, or I didn't get it at all. I'm in second place. I'm in third place. I'm in last place. I'm, you know, it's like this constant comparison trap. And I think that can be incredibly challenging, especially if you already have those perfectionist tendencies. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I guess looking at it like, since we're kind of looking at binaries of like greatness versus enoughness, I typed in the chat, aspirations versus expectations is a big one. You know, journey versus destination, I think is kind of what you're getting at, Wendy. Are Absolutely. You, yes. Yeah. Are you in the day? Are you in the journey? Or are you just grinding and hitting your head against the wall for the, the arriving? And that's the one big thing. I love talking to people about it. There never is an arriving. Like you never just arrive and it's like perfect. Because I look at all like celebrities, people who win the lottery, they've made it big. They've hit the big time. But then what? They like lose their money in a year after that. I think the thing that, that I rub up against in not only looking at and taking a really critical look, as I mentioned, at, at the conditioning that I'm unwinding and peeling back the layers on, you know, really realizing how many things that I thought I wanted were actually kind of installed in me or things that I co-opted from society, culture, family, religion, where I grew up. The people that I think that I, for many years, and society in general, sort of deifies or makes godlike are people like, I'll just use two random examples, like Kobe Bryant. You know, Kobe was one of my favorite basketball players. You interview someone like Kobe or even Michael Jordan as an example of many examples that they had this unrelenting, myopic, I'll use psychotic drive to be the best. That if, if anything short of a championship every single year was considered a failure. And there are a lot of athletes that have that. I'm just using Michael and Kobe as two examples because I love basketball, but we could look at football, we could look at hockey, we could look at any competitive sport where there's a very binary winner and a loser. And, you know, in interviews, Kobe has often talked about how he would sacrifice the sanctity of certain relationships because of his unrelenting desire to win. It was basically like, I'm here to win. If you're not, fuck off. And you see that in entrepreneurs. You see that in business with this idea of someone like Elon Musk, who, you know, I I admire many of the things he's done, but getting almost no sleep and literally sleeping on the assembly line at the Tesla plant. And it's sort of like these people in our society that we put on a pedestal because of their breathless near psychotic, just use psychotic, like myopic, like this thing will be done no matter what. And I don't care if I sacrifice my relationships. I don't care if I sacrifice my health. I don't care if I sacrifice my sanity. I'm going to get this goddamn thing that I want. And we celebrate those people and we champion them. And I don't think it's necessarily a healthy thing. No, I'm right there with you. I mean, it's the same thing in medicine. We go without sleep. We go out without eating. God forbid you go to the bathroom when you need to go see another patient. But what's the end point? I love Kobe too, but he had an expiration date like the rest of us do. What's the end point in all of that? I don't know. I think that that's where you have to sit down with those like philosophical questions and and think about it. Like 
is that amount of sacrifice worth the end gain? And that's where I just had to get in my own career to be like, no, I'm not okay with other people raising my kids. I want to be there. Yes, I was saying something similar to Jason about like this whole idea of the sacrifice. It's like, for me, I I don't have children. And so one of the uh, advantages, so I've heard, is is that I can sleep whenever I want. (laughs) It sounds like if I ever become a mom, that might not be the case. Sleep is very important to me. I, I really value it. And this idea of like, well, if you want to be successful, you have to skip out on sleep. I'm like, hell no. Especially being somebody who's passionate about health and wellness, sleep is one of the most important things for our health and wellness. And you're telling me that I'm going to have to get less sleep and thus compromise my short-term and long-term health? Uh, I don't think so. Like, I want to feel good. I want to feel energy. I don't want to have that drained feeling unless there's something that's more important, which case, perhaps one day if I am a parent, that would be worth that sacrifice, right? But like making more money, getting more followers on social media is not worth losing sleep over for me, literally. I guess it is. It goes back to this this conversation of what are we giving up and what do we want to have happen? But it, it goes back to this idea we've been discussing, kind of this overarching philosophy of where's my gold medal? Because it's this idea that if I grind as hard as Kobe or Elon or whomever, then I'll get a similar result as they will. But I think the three of us having been entrepreneurs as many years as we have, we know that you know the sleepless nights or the, a certain amount of sacrifice or doing things in a specific order or in a specific way don't guarantee any outcome. So you mentioned, Aaron, you know, aspirations versus expectations. I think that that expectations are kind of baked into this equation a little bit of we're encouraged to, to emulate our avatars or our heroes, right? That whatever industry we're in, many people encourage us to find someone who's further along on the path or way down further in the path and maybe reverse engineer their success. But I've personally found in my life that certain not philosophies, but actions or steps or the way that their life played out is not going to mirror how my life is going to play out, even if I try and take the same steps or, or quote, walk the path that they walk. And again, in this unraveling process, it's kind of like, okay, I mean, guidance is necessary, mentorship. We obviously are big fans of, of coaching and mentoring people. But the slippery slope is thinking that if I just do A, B, C, D, E, and F, I'll have the same result as Aaron or Kobe or Whitney or Elon or whomever we try and emulate, but it's just not true. And I think that that can be really frustrating, you know, of, well, I did all the right things and, and I followed the advice and I did the roadmap and I emulated this avatar and this hero. Why the fuck didn't it work for me? And then it kind of becomes this idea of, do I keep going with the thing or do I give up? Like, when do we know when it's time to give up on something or when it's time to keep going? I know that's a very aqueous, open-ended question for both of you, but it's something I've been sitting with. Like, when do we know when it's time to say, I'm ready to give this up or I should keep pushing? Yeah. And I I think that's the million-dollar question. Especially for me. So in my line of coaching, I do burnout and transition. So I have physicians and high-performing women that come to me and they're like, yeah, I'm ready to quit. How do I do it? 
And my first thing always is, is like, all right, I'm not your guru. I'm not going to tell you how to do this, but I will sit next to you and we will work through the processing of this and kind of like the unbundling that you're talking about, Jason. And it is so easy. We all want the equation. We all want the protocol that says like, do this and this will happen. And it gets me so frustrated when I see ads online or I get emails like, here's your five-step process to da-da-da-da-da. And I'm like, yeah, I wish it was that easy. It's not. I think that's what makes true coaching so hard is that I don't have your answers. You have your answers. And I get to help you discover them. And so a good coach is going to be a mirror rather than a microphone. And so with that question of, is it time to throw in the towel or do I go another quarter? I think that has to be a very personal answer and you have to get really fucking real with yourself. I just love that you are so forthright about, you know, you're not this guru, you're not this person who's going to do it for them. And I feel like one of the concerns that I have sort of with the coaching industry, I was having a conversation last night with a mutual friend of mine and Whitney's. There's this new terminology that's been kind of floating around and the term is called a contrapreneur. It's like, I'm going to show you this five or 10 step or 12 step program to make seven figures and just follow my thing and you'll do it too. And they're making millions off of telling people how to make millions. so much money. Oh, it makes (laughs) me sick. (laughs) <laughs> but it's but, but it's hilarious because it's like, I'll show you how to make a million dollars because I'm making a million dollars telling you how to do it. <laughs> and it's rampant. It's so many people positing this idea, as you mentioned, of just do these steps and you'll have the result. Oh, and by the way, pay me $20,000 so I can show you these 12 steps. It's I love the term entrepreneur because I don't believe everyone's heart is in the right place in this industry. I don't believe everyone is in it with this idea of helping, supporting, guiding, and showing people that the answers are already inside of them. I think a, a huge portion of this industry is scaling these programs to a point where they're not individualized anymore. It's just a one-size-fits-all, here's my course, here's my seminar, come to my program. And, and Whitney and I have been to many of these. And I'm realizing that a lot of the advice that I've been given in years past, I don't want to even want to listen to it anymore because I'm like, I don't want your roadmap. I don't want your one size fits all guidance. I want someone who will talk to me as a human being with my individual hopes, dreams, fears, concerns, and traumas and honor that rather than trying to give me a 50 page guide that is the same 50 page guide you're giving to everyone. This also reminds me, Jason, of the conversation we had earlier today about coaching certifications. And I think. There are some coaching certification programs that are really wonderful. And then there are some that are just designed to get you to pay them money and in certifications in general. I mean, in any health and wellness capacity, like you can get certified in something. And it's really tricky. You know, earlier today, Aaron, somebody asked me what I was, how I was certified as a coach. And I was reflecting on that thinking like, does it really matter to be certified? Like, what does that actually mean versus to me, what's most important is A, are you in it for the right reasons? Are you studying it? Are you practicing it? Are you based in ethics? Are you working with people? Are you doing good work? 
I, just because you have a certification doesn't mean that you're a great coach or a great pa- practitioner of any type. And I'm, I'm curious how you feel about being certified. Oh my God, 100%. <laughs> That's why I wrote in the chat box, preach, because it's so true. You knowing my background, I come from the like ultimate roadmap certification industry. I mean, it's medicine. We got to jump through so many hoops between residency trainings, getting your degrees, sitting for your boards, getting your state licensure, keeping your credentialing up, all of those things to prove like I am good enough. Essentially, that's what people are internalizing. I am good enough. I have the piece of paper. And that's why I love coaching because anybody can be a coach. And like you said, that can also be a downfall that anybody can be a coach. But just because you have the piece of paper, does that really make you good? No, it doesn't at all. So there's a lot of discussion right now in physician coaching arena that we need to have some kind of standardization. And I spoke up in a meeting a couple of months ago and was like, no, we're not going to MOC. We're not going to maintenance the certification coaching like we've done with being a doctor. Because look where that's gone. We now pay these organizations who board us thousands of dollars a year just to say we're good enough. Answer some questions, doing some modules, turn in so much paperwork and pay them money to say that we're adequate as physicians. I don't know that the general public understands that, but there's some really bad doctors who are board certified. So I don't think that that is like the telling line. And I think it's the same thing in coaching. You can easily go online and buy a certification by just getting an online course and never doing any of the modules. Or you can get a really good certification where you do like 100 hours for an entry-level coaching program. But at the end of the day, I do think it comes down to who you are and who you show up as. And the people that you talk to and you work with, they first and foremost must trust you. And you must be a trusting person as well. And you have to understand what coaching really is. What rubs me the wrong way is there's so many people who are telling people what to do and how to do this and how to fix their life. That's not coaching. That's mentorship. That's consulting. Coaching, again, is I'm not giving you those answers. I'm going to help guide you. I'm going to ask you really powerful questions. I'm going to ask you to see it from a different direction or a different perspective. But at the end of the day, they are your answers because only you live your life. I don't go home with you. I don't knock the donuts out of your hand. I don't tell you to get up out of bed in the morning. So you have to be accountable for your own life, for your own decisions, for your own answers. Yes, absolutely. You know, and it's it's almost like a, an elitist perspective too. It kind of reminds me of getting a degree at college. You know, it's wonderful. You know, there's so much that you can learn by going to a university or a college. It's great to have that degree, but I can't say in my personal experience, and again, I went to college for a creative career. I went to film school and I studied psychology as well during that, but that wasn't my main focus. And I got this degree that barely anybody ever asked me for. You know, they're not looking to see what my degree is. They're looking to see what I've learned and what I'm putting into practice and, and who I've become. And I've met incredible filmmakers who never went to film school. And you're not like watching their movies or let's say 
you're not going to their IMDb credits to see what their, you know, film school credentials are. You're you're t- looking to see do you even like the movies that they're making? Do other people like the movies that they're making? What are their reviews? And to me that's similar in a lot of ways to coaching. It's like I've never had anybody as a client come to me and say, "Well, what are your certifications?" They don't care about that in my experience. What they care about is can I get these results that you're talking about? Can I help change their life? Can I give them their aha moments? And they're often looking for somebody to comfort them, for someone to hold them accountable and support them through things. That's not to say that I don't believe in certification, but I have not been certified as a coach for a lot of those reasons that you shared, Aaron, because it didn't feel necessary. And honestly, it feels like it's taking me away from my work because all of those hours that I'd be putting into that certification are taking me away from the hours that I could be spending with people that already want to work with me and don't care about the certification. Right. So maybe if I can balance the two of them, eventually I'll get certified in something. But the other question is like, it's hard to even trust what certification program to join because there's so many out there that, to your point, Aaron, are they actually there to help me or are they just there to make money from me? I think this bleeds into so many industries, you know having been a chef for 15 years and and exiting that industry, one of the biggest questions I get from people is, do I need to go to culinary school? You know, will that be a thing that is advantageous for me in in going into the food industry? And and the great majority of the time I tell people, no, you don't need to go and spend, you know, the 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 grand at CIA or Cordon Bleu or whatever it is. Because to both of your points, you know, I have met extraordinary artists in the culinary industry that did not go to culinary school. And I think it's this decoding of, man, there's a lot of layers. It's again, going back to society's markers of success of, you have this piece of paper, you have this certification, you've spent the hundreds of thousands of dollars to have this title, therefore you must be trustworthy. It's interesting how we do that, right? It, it How people see a certain title, whether it's doctor or chef or coach or whatever it may be. I mean, we're also kind of obsessed with (laughs) everyone being a New York Times bestselling author. Whitney sent me a tweet the other day from someone who was like, how could it be that every fucking author out there is a New York Times bestselling author? Like people are like, who the hell is this person or Amazon bestselling author? We're we're obsessed with these metrics of success in these titles. And it's like, I don't know. I'm just getting to a point where it's like, who fucking cares? Do you love what you do? Are you in it for the right reasons? Are you supporting people? Are you bringing a sense of joy and connection and presence to your work? You know, are there tangible results? Are people digging it? I don't know. I just, I'm ranting now. I don't have a point. No, I love Is it. there I'm a right point? There with I don't know. <laughs> I, I am 100% right there with you as a woman who is a multiple six-figure earner to not anymore. It is. You have to... It's going back to like, what is enough? What is enough in my life? And what are the things that I must do if this isn't enough? What am I going to have to sacrifice to be back at that financial level? I just had to really sit back and be like, it's not worth it. And even in entrepreneurship, I look at people like you were saying who are really grinding and like doing all the things and the webinars and the Facebook ads and like the all the damn things. And I'm like, if that's what I got to do, like it's not worth it to me. 
not interested, pass. Because ultimately, that's not why you're doing this work, I suppose. You know what I mean? Like, Jason actually, was it on the podcast? I feel like it might have been Jason, but it's hard to say because we have a lot of offline conversations too. You were talking about somebody who just their whole business is based on referrals. Like it's not based on social media marketing or newsletters or website or whatever else. Like they're just getting referrals from other people and sustaining their whole career that way. Oh my God. When I was listening to you. I can tell you that's exactly what runs my business. It's not Facebook. I mean, that's incredible. (laughs) It, It is conversations and connections. And finding those ways to make it with people. Like the highest conversion where I get my clients from is because their friend, their sister, their cousin was like, hey, I worked with Erin. She rocked my socks off. You are burned out. Go talk to her. And that's at our human core. And I think if we would get away from all the like bells and whistles and maybe this will help you, Jason, like while all the social media and giving yourself to permission to disengage is because at the end of the day, people just want community and they just want connection and they want somebody on the other side to really hear them and to see them. And I think podcasting is another great medium where we can sit here and we can have honest to God, real conversations that we share with other people in the world. And we've made connections with them. And I hope that they reach out and have further and deeper connections. But I think if you want to honor yourself, to honor your clients, to honor your business, you start to focus on those connections. And when life gets crazy and overwhelming and frustrating, you step back and you say, okay, where have I gotten off of the mission, which is about helping people and making connections? And, and you realign. That's what I've had to do that twice now in my business and be like, no, 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 we're pulling back because we're not, we're not going to get crazy. Because even though, yeah, other people saying that's successful, But I'm like, yeah, they say they made six figures, but how much did they spend? Because personally, the only member that I am interested in is what gets deposited in my bank account. I mean, and also to your point, Erin, it's not just how much money they spent, but it's how much time did they spend doing it? How much energy did they spend doing it? I mean, there's so many other costs involved to get to that place, not to mention a lot of the sacrifices that people make ethically. You know, like I, I look at, a lot of social media trends. And actually, I was talking to a friend last night about this, who I've had a lot of conversations with about burnout. And he realized he was so burned out trying to hustle as an influencer. He he's just doesn't want to do it anymore. He's trying to step entirely away from marketing and sales and maybe hire somebody else to do that for him because it, it makes him feel so burnt out. He's done it for 10 plus years. It's just not what he wants to do. It's not in his heart. And he was saying how hard it is to watch the influencer space evolve because it almost feels like it's the popular kids now. And it's these people that are doing totally super high, (laughs) junior high all over again. Yeah. And it's just like junior high, you know, the same challenges of like, do I have to dress the way this person is dressing to get attention? Do I have to talk like this person? Do I have to go to the same parties? Like, a lot of those same things that have burnt us out from when we were young are still happening online right now. And I think when we're feeling that discomfort, it is a really good sign that that isn't for us. And actually, high school is a really great lesson because the popular kids in my high school are not 
who I want to be right now. Like who they are right now is not who I want to be. So I'm glad that I didn't, you know, get into their popular clicks because maybe that would have led me down a different path. Instead, you know, I was hanging out with my good best friends. I didn't care about how popular they were and what they were wearing and et cetera. Like we were together because we loved each other because we connected, as you were saying, Aaron, we had that community, that bond there. I didn't want to be with somebody just because they were popular. And gosh, the amount of times in my journey of being a content creator, the amount of times that I've done like collaborations with people because of their numbers is kind of sickening when I look back on it. I'm like, why? But I was so influenced by that pressure of like, ooh, you should be friends with this person because of their numbers, or you should collaborate, you should whatever else with them because of what their numbers are. And it's like, that's so gross now. Like, why did I ever live that way? You know, and Jason and I, I think we started this whole brand and this podcast because of those experiences. So I'm grateful that I went through that because that helped me realize what I didn't want. I realized that I don't need to win a popularity contest because that's ultimately not fulfilling for me. I just want to keep doing my thing. And as long as I have enough money or have the means to continue surviving as a human being, that's ultimately what's important to me. I don't need that flashy lifestyle that a lot of these influencers have. Oh my God, we're going full circle, which is why I'm not on TikTok because I refuse to get up there and shake my booty and point it at words. (laughs) I was just having this conversation with the people that I work for, for social media. And they're like, you need to be doing Instagram reels. I was like, I don't want to do Instagram reels. I don't want to be part of the cool kids and getting that sort of attention. Like my people, they're probably not even on Instagram. They're like just trying to survive. They're trying to get through this shift and get home and get to the grocery store and throw some Pop-Tarts and mac and cheese at their kids for dinner and get them to bed without ripping their heads off so they can start it over the next day. And so I'm so with you. It is about that deeper, authentic connection with people and not shaking your ass on TikTok and Instagram reels. Yes, I absolutely agree. I think the big difference is if it brings you joy or not. Like I can tell that LinkedIn brings you joy, Aaron. And you can probably tell that TikTok brings me joy. I actually found this phenomenal woman who I invited on the show a few days ago. And she's like, just this wonderful down to earth woman. She's not a teenager. She's teaching people about email marketing. And I was like, so excited about her content. She's just sitting there in her office chair sharing tips about how to send great emails. And I was like, this is awesome. This is what I want to see. And I'm so grateful that she is on TikTok because I wouldn't have found her otherwise. You know, like she she is on some other platforms, but it, it just wouldn't have come up on my feeds or at least not for a while. And so I think the big key is A, does it bring you joy? Do you like this platform that you're on? And be really evaluating why you, quote, need to do something. Because if you don't like doing Instagram reels or TikToks, like, then don't do them unless you do them and they actually do lead you to that person that you want to meet. Then maybe you, quote, do need to do them. I think the problem is, and I've, I've done this too. I mean, I am so guilty of this simply because I love social media. And I've used those terms a little too loosely, like, oh, you need to be on TikTok. Like I say this to Jason all the time, but he doesn't want to be on TikTok. So he's not going to do it until he feels like it if, if that ever happens. And the truth is, he doesn't really need to be. I just think 
it would be a fun experiment, but it, that's up to him to decide those things. There's a lot of pressure online about what you should do, what you need to do. But each of us have to filter that through what's actually important to us and if that actually brings us joy. Well, and going back to the business side things, not getting caught in the trap of, well, this is how I get clients. So this is what I have to do. Because when I've made those pivots in business where I'm like, yeah, I'm not sending out a weekly newsletter. This is bullshit. And really leaned into like what brings me joy. So many times I think people are so scared to give up things that are their stream of income and how they're, you know, getting people to come in. But I think the energy is different when it's something that brings you joy that you love doing. For instance, my podcast, I love doing my podcast. I've loved talking with you guys. And so I do that instead. And that's where my energy goes. And so I think you're right, Whitney, about trying things, seeing how it works or sticks, and then also be willing to release it when you're like, yep, gonna pass on this one. Not me. And I just have to note, I think I heard a cat in the background, Aaron, and that brings us a lot of joy. Jason, oh my and I God, love do you want to know my cat story? Please, let's make a okay. little tangent or take oh, a little yeah. tangent. Yes. Okay. <laughs> So my first fur baby, his name was Linus. He was a one-eyed Westie, a West Highland white terrier, the little Caesar dog. I got him. I had a Westie. I had a Westie growing up too. Oh my gosh. He was my, I got him my first year medical school way back in the 2000s. He was a rescue when I was in school in Missouri. Um, And so we had Linus forever and ever and ever. And he was starting to get really old. Um, Long story short, he died in May. And we kind of went without pets for a while. I was like, okay, like we got COVID and children, so it's enough. But then my grandma had some barn cats who had a slew of kittens. I'm talking like 13 plus kittens. And I was like, okay, you know, like we can do some outside cats. Let's, we live in the country. They'll love it here. So we go to look at her kittens. And I have three kids. And of course, they go with me. And so we pick out cat number one, cat number two. Cat number three. And of course, mom needs a cat, right? So cat number four (laughs) (laughs) are in the pet carrier coming home with us. And and yeah, they're quasi... We call them porch cats because they come inside sometimes and they come out. But most of the time, they're outside. But yes, they snuck in before a recording. I didn't have enough time to usher them all back outside. But we now are the proud owners of four cats. I call myself, I'm an Ambi pet owner now. I thought I was always a dog person, but I think I'm a dog and a cat person. So I'm bipetual. <laughs> I'm going to use that terminology. That brings me so much joy, Aaron, that it was like, not one, not two, not three. Oh, mom needs one. Let's go with four. Uh, I also have four felines and one very tiny, very muscular French bulldog here at the house. And uh, I've often joked that the only thing preventing me from getting more is a space issue because uh, in the size of the house that I'm in, uh, five animals is fantastic for the size. But uh, I've often joked that just give me some acreage and that thing, it's going to be an animal farm. It's oh, going to be an animal up. farm. Yeah you, yeah, you need like a quarter of an acre for chickens get some guineas, maybe a goat. Yeah, you can. Oh, no. Oh, there's pigs in the future lineup. There's goats in the future lineup. There's probably turkey. I mean, it's just going to be literally like 
Animal Farm, Dr. Doolittle situation. Um, but I'm so glad it. that you have four felines. And, and, you know, this is an interesting thing. You talked about being ambi because <laughs> I have this, I have, it's a theory. doesn't mean it's true. I'm also, I, I love dogs and cats, but I think that the general demeanor, this is a sweeping generalization of dogs and cats and how that's reflected in, in owners. I've talked to people who are very much team dog, you know? And, and as a result, many of them are like anti-cat. I'm like, well, why don't you like cats? They're like, they're just, they're just fickle and they're independent and they do what they want and they don't listen to me. And I'm like, ah, revealing some interesting things about the nature of what you like and don't like. Yeah. And my dog just, it's always happy when I come home and it, it always like jumps on me and greets me and, and he or she does what I says and they're trainable. And I just think it's interesting how what one chooses to have as an animal companion may or may not reflect different aspects of how they relate to the world, you know, because for me, like I personally like the fact that my cats are, they're loving, but they're also aloof and they do what they want. They're just like, dude, you can't control us. Like, good luck trying to train us and control us. Not that cats aren't trainable, but you know, Bella, it's like my dog, every time I come in the door, it's like, what are we going to do? Are we going to play? Are we going to go on a walk? Are we going to feed? What are we going to belly rub something? And I just think the animal companion is an interesting reflection of a person's personality. Do you find that or am I, am I overreaching for both no, of you? I, don't think I love it. I love it so much because I was definitely camp team dog. But now having cats, I'm like, all right, these guys are kind of easy. They clean up after themselves. They don't poop everywhere. <laughs> you know, they tell you when they're hungry. They're like, yes, you can love on me now. So I don't know. I don't I don't know that we'll like get a inside inside forever all the time animal again. I kind of like that they have free range or they they go outside and take care of themselves. But I think you're right. I think you definitely do. And I know like when I got my dog, it was definitely out of a place of like self need. Like I needed something for me and he filled a big space in my heart. So yeah, I think it maybe does tell a little bit about like our personality types. But another story coming off of the dog story is like when I realized I was so burned out that I needed help was the day that I was considering getting rid of Linus because he was just yet another burden. And I was just trying to be like, oh, my God, what can I offload? And it was a really eye-opening experience to me because I love this dog. I mean, like I said, he is like my first child. He was on all of our Christmas cards. He even made this year's Christmas card, even though that he died halfway through the year. And so, it's, yeah, it's just really, really telling that that was the depths that I was in when it was really, really bad that I was thinking about getting rid of something that I just utterly loved to death. This is when Whitney chimes in and says, Jason was going to do the same thing. <laughs> no, that's Go okay. Ahead. Go ahead, no. Whitney. No, Go I don't ahead. need to. <laughs> yeah, I have threatened to offload my animals at times because I'm like, you ingrates, I buy you food, I care for you, I brush you, I give you guys aren't grateful. You can fuck off. Go fend for yourselves. And it, it is when I get into a process of complete overwhelm and burnout. Because when I'm feeling balanced and I'm feeling sane and I'm feeling healthy and joyful, the last thing I'm going to think about doing is offloading my animals. But there, truth be told, Aaron, there have been moments where I'm just like, I'm done with this shit. You guys are too much. But I've never done it, thankfully, because I do love them and they are like my children. But I have thought it. Yeah. Well, and I think that supports the statistics about people who are burned out. 
I think it's like you've got like a three times more increase of getting divorced, of engaging in unhealthy habits, be it gambling, alcohol, drugs, you know, the like of it, just because you're in such a brain space that is not functioning. So, I mean, I think it's just, I use those of what I call like red flags to be like, all right, are there some like red flags happening right now? Are you thinking about like leaving your husband, selling your kids, you know? <laughs> Seriously, though, your use kids. that. Use that as red flags to be like, okay, alert, alert, alert. Something is happening here. Yeah, it's almost like I find that our body is giving us feedback and giving us signals. But if we're so busy and so inundated with things to do, we often are not paying attention to those signals until they maybe get really, really loud, you know? And I think that's the point that I try not to get to and encourage people not to get to is what is the phrase that gets passed around? Practice listening to the whispers so the whispers don't turn into screams. Oh, I always call it the feather or the two by four. Like, do you listen to the tickle of the feather or do you wait for the two by four upside your head? What if it's a two by four covered in feathers? <laughs> it still is going to hurt. It's so to soft, it's soften the blow a little bit. Tiny, tiny bit, tiny bit. Well, as we're getting closer to, to the wrap up here, Aaron, uh, I personally want to take your quiz. I mentioned this previously, but the uh, how crispy are you quiz? I think that that's, is, is that a good starting point? If people want to really dig into kind of getting a taste of uh, evaluating where they're at and learning more about your work, is, th is that a good starting point, the how crispy are you quiz? Yeah, sure. It's totally tongue in cheek. It's fun, but it can be very eye-opening to be like, oh my God, that's exactly what I'm thinking. Oh yeah, that's definitely some thoughts I'm having. It has a no scientific backing behind it. It's just something purely that is out of my own brain. But I do hope that it brings some awareness for anybody that takes it, for sure. And one thing I'm, I'm super curious about, you have something in your materials on your website called the, the rest technique. And I'm seeing a lot of talk about meditation too. What is the rest technique and, and how does meditation kind of play into the, the things that you encourage people to do? Oh my God, I have another good story about this. Okay. Great. 2014, again, that was the worst fucking year of my life. I had a good friend at the time and she was like, will you come with me to yoga? And I was like, okay. I know I need to get more exercise in my life. Yes, I will come with you to yoga. I would love the class. Honestly, it was a really like intense up, down, dog, down, you know, all over the place. And you're sweating and, you know, it's like you're slipping around on your mat. And I'm just like, he man, woman, hear me roar type of thing. And then we would get to the end in Shavasana. And I hated Shavasana. I hated lying there on the floor. Like, you know, we're supposed to be like taking deep breaths and like feeling the earth cup our body. And I'm just like not into it whatsoever. And so then like I tried the Headspace app when it first came out and like some other stuff because I like I knew all the literature behind talking to patients like mindfulness and meditation, you know, it brings under cortisol levels. It, it does such amazing stuff for your body. And I was like, I knew that I needed it, but I just could not. I just couldn't get into it until I had a friend. Her name's Dr. Jill Weiner. She's out of Atlanta, Georgia. I interviewed her for my podcast. Oh, my gosh. It's been years ago now. But I just kind of was sitting there and I was like, you're an internal medicine doctor and a meditation teacher and you're cool. Like, I don't get this. And more conversations with her. And then she's like, hey, I'm going to start doing um, meditation for doctors. Would you be willing to like beta test this for me? 
And I was like, hell yes, hashtag take my money. Because I was like, if if she could teach me how to do this and do this like in a way that doesn't feel horrible like it does right now, maybe I could learn something. And so that's actually her program, the rest technique that I advertise on my website because July 2018 is when I did the beta testing for her. And it fundamentally has changed my life. And so I thought meditation had to be like all Zen and you know, you had your little seat thing and your candle and like peace bubble around you. I don't know. But how she taught it made so much sense to my science brain. She got into like the neuroanatomy and some of the physiology about it that I was just like eating it up. And then when she actually like walked you through it and did it, and I was like, oh, that's it. Like I just release and I breathe and then any thoughts that come up, I just like notice them and let them go. And like, there's no like weird chanting and it would just, it phenomenally changed my life in ways that the challenge was you needed to meditate twice a day for a couple of weeks. And she wanted you to document like before and then post afterwards. And the example I gave was like, Again, three kids were now four, six, and nine. At the time, we would have been two, four, six. And one of my kids was painting fingernail polish on another one of my kids. And then, of course, they dropped it on the floor. So it's all over the bathroom floor and like the rug. And like then they run through the house because they got fingernail polish. So, like, typically I would blow my lid and lose my shit. But I had started doing meditation and it was just like, okay, so there's fingernail polish all over the place. And on my children. Okay. I see this. I'm okay. We're okay. And my husband looked at me and he was like, you're okay with this? And I was like, we're going to be fine. We can handle this. And that was the point that I was like, oh my gosh, this stuff is so good. I have to tell everyone about it. So a majority of anybody who comes and coaches with me, I'm like, okay, you need to head over to Jill's website. You need to just buy the self-paced course because it's super easy. She breaks it down in videos. You don't have to do... And this is before COVID. You don't have to go to the retreats. Like she will teach you. This is how I learned was through the internet. And I can just tell you, it's just made such a huge difference. And it's science-based. It's not super wacky. Thank God I had meditation in my life when COVID happened because those were like the times that we really, really needed it. Not knowing that everything before that was just like the warm-up game. Oh my gosh. I can't say enough amazing things about it that it has just really helped with my what she calls adept energy and just really helping me see like my thoughts don't control me that they're just there and just as the heart beats the brain thinks there's so many like good quotables from you Aaron <laughs> as part of the show notes we actually have tweetables and i feel like there's so many for you it's going to be tough to decide because you you've just dropped so many succinct nuggets of gold Yep, I agree. I was I was trying to write down some of them to help out our editing team. And I'm like, well, I don't know what I'm going to pick. I love that because my team keeps a document on Google Drive that says shit Aaron says. So I would love if you guys could contribute to that document from today. <laughs> we will add gold nuggets in the shit Aaron says folder. Gladly. Aaron, it has been such uh, an incredible pleasure getting to know you and you know, it really has felt like we were just kind of like kicking it by the fireplace, having some tea or some coffee. Just your personality is so open and lovely and, and just, you know, 
you're just full of wisdom and love. And it's just been an absolute pleasure having you here. Well, I'm just so thankful that you guys said yes when I asked to come on here. It's just been so much fun. And I just want to put out to your audience, like you're not alone. You're not alone with the thoughts that you're having. And I hope that we have spoke out some of your thoughts into the open world to validate you and to say like, you're not broken. Nothing has gone wrong here. You are okay. You're just going through some deconstruction. And that's a perfectly normal part of life. Yeah. And I, I needed to receive that too, I think as much as anybody else right now. So, so thank you for that encouragement and that reflection, Aaron. And to you, dear listener, for the show notes for this podcast, to link to Aaron's work, her website is truthrxs.com. We'll link to her website where you can take her quiz, dig into more about her incredible work in the world with helping you recover from burnout and, and her great programs and coaching. We'll have all of our social media handles. All of the goodies we mentioned will be at our website, which is wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. Just click on the podcast section and it will take you right to the show notes for this episode, all of Aaron's links, and all of our previous episodes. And if you want to reach out to us directly, we always love hearing from you guys. Oh, Aaron, you have a new website. I you do. Website. Sorry that we it. didn't get you the new information. Yeah, we went through oh, a big changeover. So Tell us about RXS, it. yeah, that was, it was part of the, the pivot in business. So I'm excited since we kind of talked about this here. But yeah, that Truth RXS, it's still up, but I really like cut the fat. And so you can still find all that goodness on Truth RXS. But where I really want to promote is Dr. Me First. That is where my podcast resides. If you want to come hang out and get some more Aaron Wiseman sass, go to Dr. Me First. Or if you are looking... And again, this is not like the handbook on how to fix yourself. But if you're looking for a fun workbook with a lot of Aaron Wiseman sass in it to help you deep dive and get a better look into yourself, more awareness and clarity, Dr. Me First workbook is there too. So head over there. And if you want the coaching side of things, go to Burnt Out to Badass. So much fun. Such a cool community. I think everyone would love it there. Specifically focused for females and high achieving careers. Amazing. Well, if you want to get all that sass, buckets of sass, troughs of sass, Grand Canyon's full of sass, go check out Erin's website, her incredible work in the world. And uh, again, we will be back with another great episode of This Might Get Uncomfortable Soon. We adore you, Erin. We're huge fans already of your work. And thank you so much for blessing us with your presence again today. Thanks for listening and getting out of your comfort zone with us today. For show notes and more high-performance resources to help you thrive, go to wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com.